Welcome to the podcast Rise and Play. I am Sophie Vaux, your podcast host. I bring together leaders, entrepreneurs, fund makers, investors, and educators who are here to make a change in the industry. For a brighter and healthier future of the games we will make, and how we will make them. We're here to start a conversation because listening and asking the hard questions is sometimes enough to inspire change in us, to take the leap to. Let's begin. Today, I'm very excited to have with me Benjamin Chevalier from Mighty Bear Games. So a bit of background about Ben. Ben started almost 20 years ago at Ubisoft Montpellier as an artist, then joined Gameloft, LucasArts, and King, and did some teaching as well, and co-founded two studios. Ben spent most of his career doing art direction, building and leading teams of anywhere from three to a hundred people. With Simon, his co-founder, they started Mighty Bear Games in early 2017 with ex-King colleagues and grew the studio up to 50 people, team members, and after two rounds of funding. At Mighty Bear Games, Ben overviews both the art and the growth teams focusing a lot on building best practices, developing leadership on the art side, as well as developing and executing our product marketing strategy. So hi, Ben. Really happy to have you here. How are you today? Hey, Sophie. Very, very happy to be here. I'm super honored to be invited on your, on your podcast. I'm doing well. Thanks. Yeah, me as well. I know we have had uh, a lot of discussion actually well, not recorded for a year and especially during pandemic and extending practices about leadership. So I'm really excited as well that we can share a bit of uh, the highlights of our conversation to also the audience with uh, the podcast. So I, I have my first question about Mighty Bear Games because when I also was reading your bio and uh, going through the companies you've been in and the experience you have, you have been in big companies, uh, big position, you also had experience co-founding studios. So what led you to open Mighty Bear Games as well in Asia? Can you walk us through like, you know, from this whole path to the genesis of Mighty Bear Games? Yeah, absolutely. So if you go back in, in time, so when I, when I started, I started as a environment artist, uh, more specifically at Ubisoft Montpellier at the time. And I spent about four or five years there. Um, I got really tired of production at the time without exactly knowing why. I was I was like I feel like this is maybe not for me. I was I was doing pretty okay in terms of you know my my output, but just like personally, I, I didn't feel very well. And I switched to teaching for a while. Went back into the industry a little bit. Went worked in game loft as well. Decided to go out of the industry again to to teach. Um, that was that was in Malaysia uh, at the time. Game loft was in, in Vietnam. And I joined LucasArts, and LucasArts was my first, um, I think, experience with an American company. I was like, oh, so things are kind of run differently here. It's a different type of, you know, company culture. This is kind of the first time I really understood a little bit what a company culture could be. And later on, joining King, I realized also, wow, another way, you know, to run a, a company and to to take care of your employees and and to build teams and to build ownership. And it's a Nordic company, so they have... Uh, there is a big, you know, emphasis sorry, on the culture of, of the company. And so Mighty Bear Games itself, we, all of us who started Mighty Bear Games, we, we were eight people initially. All of us were part of the same team at King. King got acquired by Activision Blizzard and we were offered an option to either stay and, you know, 
stay within the company and move back to Europe or stay in Singapore. And it, it just like it just felt like to us at first we liked working together. We liked you know being in Singapore, and it was a great timing. So it was kind of a leap of faith, but there was also a lot of trust within the team, working with people that we've known for a year, and and it, it just felt like an amazing opportunity. And all of us felt like let's just continue working together. Let's just continue you know building titles that we believe in and essentially being in charge of, you know, this time the culture that we want to build because each company had very, very different ways to do things. And we felt like we could do our own essentially and, and build something that we feel is better for us. And I think like for me personally, I, I, I can't talk about you know, the rest of the team really, but for myself, I, I think it's really a reaction to, to work cultures that was, I was just not very happy with an opportunity to build something together better. And we happen to be passionate about games, but it's more like, I like the people I'm working with. I like the relationship that we have as a team. Let's continue that. Let's continue building on this. Uh, this that was that's how we started. Mm -hmm. And uh, about starting uh, your own company, because also I'm asking this as sometimes I play with a thought as well, of course, of starting a own company studio in the past. There are a lot of um, you know when you are in very stable, secure companies, you have always this. Uh, maybe illusion, I don't know, of safety net, but you do have a safety net. And what were the, mm. the fears, if you had any, before starting your own company? What uh, went well in the end or what uh, was still a true challenge, you know, when starting with your own company? Right. So that's, that's a good question. Um, I would agree when, when working in a large company, so it really changed for me. Uh, and I'll explain why I, I used to think as well and feel like there is a certain safety there. But through my experience working at, you know, King and LucasArts, both of them, which were fairly large company closed down, the studios were doing well, but they got acquired. And when they were acquired, so in the case of LucasArts, Disney decided that, you know, we have a, we have a game studio back in the US, we don't really need a game studio here. It takes a lot of effort to also realign the strategy. And it's like, like a lot of like business related reasons to, to not continue the, the studio here. And so they closed the branch. And same thing for King in Singapore. They felt like, let's bring people back to Europe to ensure, again, like better alignment, you know, being in the same time zone that really helps communication. It's like a lot of things that make sense. But this, this idea of, you know, sort of safety of being in a large company like multiple times got completely shattered for me. And and I felt like, what do I prefer? Do I prefer to be in a large company where I have no idea what people are doing and how these companies really being run in the end? Because we just see the end result, like the decision that is being made that affects us all. Or do I prefer to work in a place where I have full visibility on the runway that we have with the company? And and I actually feel right now much safer. And I've always felt much safer working in a smaller structure that is very transparent about how we're doing. Because I understand exactly what amount of risk I am taking. People understand how not, you know, the amount of risk that they're taking themselves. And so, so far it's been, sometimes it's been hard, right? Like you, you don't always have a comfortable runway. It's not always the case. But with Mighty Bear Games, so far we've been pretty, um, I wouldn't say lucky because it's, it's probably just, you know, hard work. And uh, Simon has been really, really good at building relationships, bringing investors, making sure that we have you know, that runway that is, that is always there. So it's, it's all in all for me, it's, it's just been much better. I, I sleep much better at night running my own studio and uh, then being in a large company right now. Moreover, because also I, you know, I, the people who work with me chose me and I choose the people I work with. So there's like, 
this sense of, you know, I don't feel like a, I did not always feel great in larger companies where I was not really choosing the people I was working with uh, and likewise on the other side. So yeah, all, all, overall, it's been pretty great for me. And and what you point out actually is this false sense of security, mm. but actually it comes down to also uh, the sense of autonomy, autonomy and control, right? So when you go on your own, you... Maybe you have bigger challenges, things to deal with, but at least you know what's happening. And I think it's an important point when you weigh the pros and cons of going for your own company. Do you want to own sort of your destiny fully or then uh, let it in, in the hands of others and then actually doesn't work for everybody, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you, you just pointed on something very important to me, which I, I, hate, I remember hating when I was working in in larger structures to sort of blame other people for things that were happening. Like now I can only blame myself mm. <laughs> <laughs> ultimately. And I, I really prefer that. I, I felt bad feeling that way before. So yeah, absolutely. Like being in control. All right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I wanted to ask more. So first part of the question is, uh, where does the name come from? So I'm a bit curious. I don't even know myself. So I take the chance to ask this. And uh, second part of the question is like, how did you end up doing games that are actually not that close to what you've been doing, you know, at King, like free to play, casual, etc. And we, are, you are more known for today games like Battle Royale and Apple Arcade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the name itself, <laughs> I think it's going to sound a little bit. It's not underwhelming, but it's essentially Simon uh, used to be called Papa Bear. That's that's his nickname. And we're like, what are we? And then we're like, like, of course, we had a lot of horrendous ideas and stuff that just was not really nice. Uh, but we ended up with Mighty Bear. And well, Mighty Bear game sounds kind of okay, right? It's kind of, it's kind of nice. And it's just sticked, you know? It's the kind of things where it, it's not coming from, from something particularly deep. It's just like, it's a nice name. Everyone kind of liked it. We had we had a few um, options, but it was nice to uh, to settle on that. Everyone was comfortable with that, essentially, on the on the team initially. There were, there were only a few things that we decided very early. It was like our values and principles and the name of the studio. <laughs> that was all before we even, you know, incorporated the company. Uh, so that's where it came from. Essentially, Simon's, uh, Simon's nickname, nickname was the, uh, uh, the driving thing. And in terms of the games that we make and, you know, how, how we, you know, we're now we're visible for Butter Royale and how we went from free to play to uh, more subscription based type of titles. Uh, we actually started with free-to-play titles, and we still consider ourselves as a, a mobile game or cross-platform, actually, a game company at the moment. We had an opportunity with Apple at some point where they asked us, like, look, we have a new platform that is, you know, that we're building a subscription platform, and we're looking for good content. We're, we're looking for teams, you know, that are going to be able to deliver uh, great experiences, and we pitched them uh, multiple projects. They actually picked two of them, and we said that we don't have enough people to make two of them, so we'll have to, you know, we'll have to do one. And it, it was better real. And so the transition actually from you know free to play to subscription based was fairly painless because you, you go from a place where you need in free to play generally to validate your metrics before you can invest more into your project. You have to be very very iterative. It's uh, you know it's 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 an entire you know, process around making free to play titles where uh, you go back to something that's a little bit more like a sort of a premium experience. And all of us, I think, on the team have previous console and PC experience, like premium, like could say premium titles or pre AAA titles, if you like. And so that was that was fairly um, painless to uh, 
to, to go and work on, you know, something where you know what you're going to make, you know, the amount of time, you know, the quality that you're aiming for, you have budgets that are set uh, and you just focus on delivering the best possible experience. We are actually working on free-to-play titles at the moment. Okay, exciting. Well, we'll talk more about it a bit later. And um, about games, um, what is your personal relationship to games? So it's very clear, mm -hmm. of course, that, like your whole career is around games, but I, I'm always curious about how it becomes a vocation for people. So what is your personal relationship to games? Why is it so much part of your life now? So I, I think... <laughs> So well, it's the same thing with me for like like my my career or the reason the why and everything is is it really started by chance like I was interested in I wanted to be a engineer initially and my math was not good enough for that and then I was like I like web design so I learned you know more about JavaScript and you know HTML and all these things and I started designing with this and at the same time I was just drawing on the side and Ubisoft um, which had a studio in Montpellier was hiring at the time and a person I I knew just mentioned that to me and, and she was telling me like hey you, you gotta go and you, you gotta show your you know your portfolio and, and tell them and luckily for me at the time the art director was looking for junior for people who had actually no idea what they were doing and who they could you know mentor and coach and you know bring on board to work with them and that's how I got started in games I love games I was playing games but I never imagined in my life that I could actually work there it's uh Uh, so it's it's been really by chance, and I I stayed uh, since then because I found I think a place where of course I work on products that you know I I love myself I consume a lot and that that has been really formative in my life um, I've been playing console games I've been playing PC games a lot and I think now I found also a place where making games I I went from being purely about production like developing my craft. To now I'm developing more my leadership skills, building teams, uh, building processes. And I feel like it's a never ending, I mean, whichever way, right? Whether I go into more like a leadership type of development or more focused on my skills as like a craft, uh, it's an endless process. Once you discover that, like there is always something next, there is always the next stage, it's something new to learn uh, and to apply. It's, it's just, you know. You just if, if you're passionate about this, you're, you're just going to keep finding things to learn. So it's, yeah, it has this, this sense of, you know, I'm working on products that when I was younger made me kind of, it was my escape. Uh, I was playing like, I don't know, DuckTales or I was playing uh, Ninja Turtles or whatever, you know, on my, on my NES. It was my first, that was my first uh, console to, you know, actually uh, working on, on these things and working with companies like LucasArts at the time. I was like, oh, Monkey Island Company, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I, I love this, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think also for most of us as well, although we like games a lot, never thought it would be such a big career today. So I think in, in this generation and age, we are all like, wow, that's awesome. That's, that's more of a luck and opportunity. That's something all planned out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I would say so, especially at the time there was no, you know, um, you couldn't study making games or anything like this. You would just have to be sort of somehow, you know, joining at the right moment. I was lucky. That was really a good timing. And so a bit further now about personal values and uh, company culture. So let's start first with you and mm -hmm. your personal values uh, in work and life. And what are they? And how do they somehow reflect in the company you created? Right. This is Yeah, this is super interesting. So I think you could say in my case, it's it's kind of like, I think I started really 
thinking about my own values when I started thinking about what I wanted to build as a, as a company, as a place. It's not like I have such strong values that I understand myself and this is what you know I'm going to do as a, as a company. Uh, the work on understanding these, like what do I care about deeply? What makes me tick? You know, what makes me a better person? What makes me you know, a better friend, better husband, better whatever, right? Um, that came actually from me working you know, being a better leader, being a better team member, being a better person in my in my team that triggered a lot of this sort of introspection. But I, I can tell like personally, my really my personal values now, I can talk about them a little bit. You know, being honest and, and transparent with people is something that is important to me. I have a complex family background where uh, I was kind of always torn apart between people and telling different stories to different people, not being able to be honest. And I had to sort of separate myself from, from that at some point. And it was liberating. And I, I feel like, you know, omitting things or obfuscating things, being political in a way, right? Within your own family uh, felt really bad to me. And the same thing in the workplace. I feel like I just, I, I need trust. I need openness. I need authenticity from people so that I can function well. If not, I just feel bad. I just feel really bad. And same in my life. So I, I think yeah, transparency, trust, that's, that's really important to me. And that's something that we actively uh, uh, practicing in the studio. Same thing with maybe doing things like a sort of bias for action. You know, uh, I'm not super patient, so I, I, it's okay if I do embarrassing stuff. So, you know, I, I'm going to release something that's not really completely there, but I'm like, I, I need to learn from it. I need to see, you know, I need people to experience that and then understand better how, how I can improve on it. And so, and same thing with the studio, we, we have a tendency to be a, a little bit fast with releasing, sorry. Um, uh, content, even if it's not always perfect, uh, we have so much to learn from it. And I think I think it's okay to to just release stuff that you're not completely hundred percent like happy with, you know. And I think just getting yourself um, that's again something that I realized um, slowly. I think I need to have the right people around me, people that will make me again, you know, be a sort of mirror to myself, reflection um, that will make me a better person, make me think, make me question myself. Um, and it's the same, I think, within within the studio right now. We we call that in the studio we call that hiring upwards, which is we want to hire people that are better than us. There is no. It's just I I, I want to be around people who are going to challenge me, and it's the same thing in life. It's it's what makes you again like improve as a person. I can't really separate. Really, be honest. Like the experience I have personally with my friends, and also the experience I can have in the studio as well. Like people will just make me think. You know, they will literally just like i'll 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 pause and be like am i i've been doing some things you know for a long time a certain way and i realize like maybe that's that's not the best way to do that and and it's not you know it's not always my friends it can be people that i i talk to the studio thanks again like thanks to these i'll say that very diverse team and very different perspectives like there are things that i i never considered before i met some some people at the studio so it's like yeah i feel this is very aligned with my own uh, values but again like this is kind of like i'm looking at it from the opposite directions like i started working on these things with the studio because there was a need for me to understand what was what mattered to me and what mattered to the rest of the team and then i realized well I mean, that's the like, same in my life like i have these things these pillars kind of kind of a way where uh, that that really mattered to me it's a good point as well when you start a company, it kind of forces you to wait a minute. I need to gain clarity on what I'm doing yeah. here. Why? Exactly. And it's a reminder as well, like when we think about culture, because I, as I was listening to you, 
The culture is really the reflect of the values of the founders. Uh, it's uh, hard to separate them and either it's accidental, unintentional, so you don't know about them, or it comes like you have managed to verbalize them quite cre clearly with intention. Uh, because it's, it's, uh, it's in all the actions you do and what you say, what you do, it's so much integrated. Yes, that's, that's true. And when I, I feel so to uh, follow up on this, the, I feel like there are multiple stages to that. Like initially, yes, it's very much founder driven and you're like, this is the vision that we have. And, you know, people are joining in and they, mm -hmm. they start adding up to this, but at some point it's not our vision anymore and it's better and it's bigger and it's something else and it has to change and we have to accept that mm -hmm. and it's and that's where the culture that is established has to bring in people that are going to make the sum better and bigger than just one more person uh, they will shape up the culture again and again and again and we have to i think not be precious about what we built and i'll say that just trying to keep you know walking the talk when we say, you know, I want to be transparent, I want to be honest, I want to, you know, be focused on you know, moving forward. And um, as you said, like, we have to leave that. We have to leave by example, right? Yeah. I can reflect as well on the fact that the culture, of course, grows organically beyond uh, you mm -hmm. as a founder. And uh, you have to embrace it. And it's more an expansion than, you know, a complete shift. But accepting because, of course, mm -hmm. with new people, the culture evolves. But the core, of course, remains the same. Yeah, I think that there's some very fundamental things that we all sort of align on. Yeah. And uh, as you have like verbalized these values, what is the process you use in your company to, I don't know, communicate it or uh, live by it? You, you gave a few examples, but do you have yeah, a specific process or approach to it to make it more explicit? Um, yeah, yeah, there are multiple things that we, um, that we do for that. So one of them, for example, is... So of course, we run every single new person joining the team through the values and principles. But before even the people join, uh, at the hiring process itself, we ask people to have a look at our values. Like, feel like, do you feel like this? This is something that you uh, that represents, you know, a part of what you think. Like, you, you you see yourself in this. How and how do you see, you know, yourself contributing to that? Uh, we generally ask people to read a bunch of of things. I mean, they have an option, right? If they don't want to read. We don't have to read, but we provide them with, with content about the company, about who we are and how we function, what we care about. Um, and so that's, that starts with that. So before people even join the, the team, they're aware of the values that, that we have there. And of course, for us, it's a test for a newcomer. They come in and we want to hear generally from, from them, you know, how do you feel we're actually leaving those values? Do you, do you feel like we're aligned with what we, we say we're, we're doing here? Um, we have a set of success criteria as well uh, that come in a little bit later. So the success criteria for us is a set of uh, topics that we use to sort of rate the, the performance of a, of a team member, but from a culture perspective, not from a technical skill set perspective, more how is the person doing in terms of openness, transparency, in terms of big picture thinking, in terms of innovation, leadership, extra. And we're asking peers to review that for the for the person and give their their input and generally um, this is a way to sort of assess no so no one like there are five levels no one can really have five at all of these topics like people have you know different strengths and weaknesses and and we have a very open you know discussion about how how people are doing there and and 
you know, if they agree, if we're aligned on, on the assessment and how we can move forward and what needs to be amplified and what needs to be you know, worked on. And that's, again, a way to reinforce the, the culture uh, that we have and sort of, you know, make sure that it's like top of mind, like technically, like what do I, what am I really doing well at and what do I want to work on? And then, of course, just leaving the, being a representative of, of that, like embodying, sorry, that, that culture. So, for example, as, you know, uh, not just you know, like any team member, we're asking people to be very open about failures, like failing publicly is very important. Um, getting people to, you know, see that we're comfortable with making mistakes, we're comfortable with acknowledging them, learning from them, transferring that knowledge back to the team so others won't make the make mistake, won't make the same mistake. And um, hopefully, tr- you know, creating a sense of, you know, safety for people to tell us what they think, give us direct feedback. Uh, and again, like it's, it's all these things that are sort of, you know, aligned with the values that we have written about the, the company. We have to give them, like we have to have very good one-on-one. We have to listen before we talk. We have to, you know, support people. And I'm not talking from a leadership perspective. I'm really talking from peer, you know, to peer. We have a rule, a sort of rule in the, in the studio, which is if someone is blocked by us, whoever we are and whatever we do, that's going to become our priority. We have to help them. Uh, we're going to stop as much as we can. We're going to stop what we do. We're going to help them. And you know, one of the few things that we do uh, to ensure that you know, the culture is lived, not just told. Yeah. And you shared a lot of tools, uh, by the way, that you're using concretely to yeah, not just have mm. nice words or paper or, or you know. So uh, that's, uh, that's a good example. And going a bit further as well, like how these values are so core as well in how you do things. Uh, can you share more about how uh, it is reflected in the hiring and firing for you? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, on the on the hiring side, um, you know, as mentioned before, we we ask people to read about the the culture that we have and prepare. We want to, I think, we want to create some a fair environment. So we know that there are some people that will that will just go and and look for information themselves and others that will maybe not think about it. It doesn't mean that they're bad or, or anything. It just means that it didn't occur to them that maybe we have actually, you know, written stuff about the company. And so we're asking, we're sending them links. Um, and we have a process within the, uh, with in terms of hiring in the team to sort of um, assess sort of the culture. We I don't really like to say culture feed because that's not exactly what we're looking for. We're looking for something more than culture feed. Mm-hmm. But let's say, you know, how is this person doing or would be doing within our culture? And we're trying to remove bias uh, with this process. So we have standardized questions. So it means like we're asking in, um, you know, small groups, diverse groups. So we never have like artists all together asking questions. Someone's like, you have a mix of designer, artist, engineer, QA, all together in a, in a single group, asking similar questions to the person going through the interview. Um, and that helps us having a sort of like baseline you know, context that is that is the same for everyone. We all asked about how does this person do in different ways, you know, about dealing with conflict, for example, dealing with um, a difficult team member or a struggling team member or uh, transparency, you know, radical feedback. Like how, how do these people do that? And so that really helps us, um, you know, as, sort of assessing, you know, how, how well this person would do in the team. What we're asking as well, uh, during the culture interview is that the person prepares questions for us. We're, we're literally asking them, please, you know, these are the people that you're going to have on the call, prepare question, uh, questions, interview us back. 
Like this is important to us. And we, it tells us a lot about the person uh, we're talking to when they actually, you know, sort of, you know, I don't know how to say that well, but like roast us a little bit, you know, with, with hard questions. I'm like, press, press the team, go ahead, press the team and see if we're, see if we're aligned, you know, with what we're saying and if we're, you know, consistent. Uh, and that's been really helpful. We used to not have this sort of process in the hiring to what we call remove the, the bias that, that can exist. And we really drastically improved the quality of the, the people that, that, that applied and, and joined the team. And then following the question, when you may have had to separate as well from people, do you see as well where coming back to these values, it was yeah, a point of decision? Absolutely. I think um, the generally it's very rarely down to, you know, how a person performs in terms of uh, technical abilities or, you know, hard skills, right? Like usually hard skills are fairly straightforward to assess and discuss, or we can even like work around, you know, has the, maybe the role has changed. Maybe the responsibilities, the requirements have changed. Can we work around that? And often we can actually. Culture is really the part where, you know, you feel like, okay, we, like we're having a misalignment here. We're ha there is a disconnect. We're, these are the things that we really value in the team. And these are the, these are the places where we need to see a change. And if it doesn't happen, we work on that together, right? We're not just telling people like, this is not working goodbye. Like, like we, we have, we always have had a period of time where we're trying to find this alignment and, and work together. Uh, but yes, we do use definitely the, the set of values that we have to uh, um, sort of generally like mutually agree on like this is not working like this in the end often this is the reason it's not working it's purely because we care about these things we care about different things we're not able to offer such and such to the person and maybe that's you know what we should do is just part ways yeah and from personal experience this hardly changes over time although you want to give it a shot but you know it's so core to yourself as well like if you're not aligned and you know how how you approach i don't know work and life uh, philosophy it's, it's it's really hard to turn this around that is true yeah i would agree with that and uh, switching gears a bit more on diversity because also you mentioned diverse mm -hmm. teams and i know as well like uh, a bit more about your team but the audience doesn't uh, you are so in singapore it's also like a big crossroad of asia and i'm pretty sure as well for people coming from europe or uh, north america could be interesting as well so Uh, what's the composition, you know, of your company now, nationalities? Like to hear more as well, this cultural mix that is very unique as well to your studio. Uh, correct. Yes, it's pretty. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty unique. So we have, well, maybe for for a bit of co context about Singapore, you you as you, you explained, it's a bit unique. Singapore itself has three, say, ethnicities here. Um, uh, you have Singaporean. Chinese Singaporean, you have Mali Singaporean, and Indian Singaporean. And of course, all around the region, you have you know, uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand. You can go as far as even like if you, if you consider the entire the entire you know APAC region, you can go as far as like New Zealand and, and Australia. Uh, if you go south, it's Singapore is a hub, so you have a lot of different people. It's very cosmopolitan, uh, and I think our team sort of <laughs> probably reflects some of some of that. Um, and Right now on the team, we have about, maybe more now, about 12, 12 nationalities uh, from around the region, from Europe. Uh, so again, we have like people from, of course, Singapore, uh, Indonesia, uh, people from India. We have people from uh, further away, so Norway, Ukraine, UK. 
England, France. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a pretty diverse team in terms of nationalities. And at the moment, the, I could talk about the, uh, since we're talking about that diversity and inclusion, the uh, the gender ratio on the team at the moment is, is about 40, 60. So we have 40%. I think we're actually, with the latest hires that we just did, I think we have, uh, we're, we're doing even a little bit better. So we're, we're uh, we're not done. Like we're we're not like yeah. Just, but we're we're fairly um uh, happy with the, the the number here. So forty percent female team members and sixty percent male. Yeah, my second part of the question was as well like, how does this work all together? And maybe to elaborate more on this part, you you know you both co-founders are from Europe, and maybe with a culture of uh, king, and I I would assume that the majority as well is. Asian in your team, so quite different culture and probably also the Asian companies. So maybe you can walk us through a bit like the early challenges you had maybe in integrating this, uh, your style of leadership and uh, and maybe now the journey of how it's incorporated. Absolutely. Um, so we are, we're actually three, three co-founders. There is uh, Simon, who's from the UK, Fadzuli, who's Singaporean, and myself, uh, French. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, um, so how we, Sort of approach keeping the building a diverse team and keeping you know diverse. So I, I mentioned a little bit about the the hiring process. So really, I'm, I'm starting at the very very beginning of things. We we try to limit, eliminate bias as much as we can with with our process around standardized questions and sort of multi layered cultural interviews. Once people join, I think generally we and that's part of the culture that we're building and trying to get people to feel comfortable with this. And I'll, I'll explain why that helps with the challenge that we have. Um, we, we have very regular one-on-one. It's like probably one of the most important tool that we, we use. Getting, um, I think it's called Team Pulse, which is essentially making sure, you know, how people are doing in the team in general, like feel comfortable, happy, not happy, issues that they want to raise. Uh, and you can do that like fairly often. So you, you can get a sense like if anyone is not doing well for any reason, right? it doesn't have to be about diversity-related issues, but we'll usually know very early. Uh, and then we do every... I think quarter or some around there, uh, team-wide surveys really to understand how we how well we do um, in terms of how we leave our values, uh, which include you know diversity. And so again, like more opportunities for people to raise uh, you know any kind of issues or just say if they're happy as well, which we're we're happy when that happens. And in terms of you know bringing a diverse team on on board and attracting a diverse group of people, I think we're just making sure that. The decision makers are as diverse as possible within the team. We have a what we call a steering group, which is uh, well, there's a bunch of people who are essentially driving maybe more the shaping up the company maybe more than than anyone else. We are trying to make our team members really visible with you know writing articles, going to maybe participating in podcasts as well, going to you know events extra and. Moreover, I think that's one of the ways people discover about Mighty Bear Games. We're trying to make sure that our games, our products themselves, represent the diversity of the team in a way. Uh, Battle Royale is, um, again, has a lot of very different characters. People find representation in Battle Royale. And we've had, you know, families writing to us saying like, wow, you know, they're, they're characters for the whole family. We've had uh, people writing to us as well in terms of, you know, like, we have a cast of characters where just people felt like, well, I can find something for myself and every single person around me that plays the game with me can find something for themselves as well. And that's that's really great to hear. And I think the the diversity that we 
we have in the game is again is, is a product of of what the team is and you know to go back to the challenge so i was i was saying we have these one ones and we have team polls and surveys uh, extra the challenge being let's say like as you said like a nordic culture type of you know company in, in southeast asia is probably the fact that people are here a bit more used of a more top-down type of uh, hierarchy maybe sometimes a bit more of micromanaging maybe not used to be asked too much you know what they think about what we're doing even that you know the pro within the project for sure but like at the studio level or hearing for example from us here is how we're doing financially speaking here are the partners that we're talking to here are the projects that are coming up and everyone is involved with this this is kind of very different from from what you would, you would find in, in southeast asia so what is hard is getting people to feel safe and open up that's really to me that's really been the, the challenge again the best way we We've been working around this and getting people to open up is, is just to make sure that us as you know people who are already part of the studio we're creating that safe environment again i was saying like we fail publicly we share our learnings we say when we don't know we say when we need feedback we ask people to give us feedback before we give them, give them feedback i want to know you know how people think i could do better to support them and then I can I can create a report with people to come back and, and share my own feedback. We're trying to be clear on, you know, for example, the objectives that we have as, as individuals, as team, they're very public. It's a team effort. It's about the team. It's not about the individual. A failure is the failure of the team, not necessarily the failure of the individual. And we are making sure that, especially on the, you know, founding team and steering group, that we don't give ourselves, you know, a pass in terms of, of being, again, like open, making the place safe. Uh, we keep ourselves as accountable as, as we can. We call each other out uh, when we just don't do that. Uh, and I think it shows. I think it's something that is visible for people joining in the team who are maybe used to a different type of culture and they are slowly warming up to that. But generally when they join, we know still, because we went through you know culture interview, that they are very likely to be comfortable with the culture that we have here. I think it's the main tool, uh, essentially, that will ensure that yeah pe people can, can feel comfortable there. Yeah, and I like really like the blog you have on, I think on Medium about the learnings that team members share like really in detail. So like it was very relevant content as well for the artists in our team. So I'll make sure to link it after the, also the podcast. But for example, this uh, this is great as well as well for people to share out there and, and leave these values, you know, of transparency. Yes. Like it's okay to make mistakes, share it, take the learning from this. But even just sharing knowledge is something that is not common uh, in the region. It's more common in Europe or in the US where, you know, for example, we have these calls, we talk to each other from time to time and we discuss like, here are the challenges I have, here's what I'm, how I've been approaching certain things. And I would say here in the region, it's, it's a little bit harder to get people to feel, you know, comfortable enough and safe enough and open up and be like, okay, let's, let's talk uh, about the way, you know, I do things and you're going to maybe share with me the way you do things. I'm sure it can happen. I'm sure it can be done. But it, it is challenging here, yeah. Mm -hmm. and that's the beauty of it. Like really, uh, it's amazing as well the mix you have in in the team and incorporating you know these cultural challenges to create something unique. And as a result, as well the games you have, Asia and uh, West meeting together mm. uh, because they are real these differences of also of culture and respecting these differences and how to incorporate them. Absolutely. And now I have also some questions more about your position as a co-founder and. Maybe let's start first, like also with your routine and 
how do you handle, you know, like your time, your day? What are your priorities at the moment? Even personal, uh, between personal and, and business life. How, how do you manage your life priorities? So my personal life priorities, I manage them very badly, I think. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's really tough. <laughs> I, I have a baby and I think my personal life, I just spend as much time as I can with my baby, my wife. We go out, we go to the pool. We, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to cut at, okay, I'll be completely transparent. I usually stop whatever I'm doing at around six and a half, something like this, spend as much time as I can before the baby sleeps, which is around eight, eight something. And then after that, I have to just go back and finish whatever, you know, I need to do. I'm, I'm working with people back in the US. So I often have calls very late at night or very early in the morning as well. Again, that's something that I have to do as a, as a founder. The question, I guess, is more like, how do I deal with the yeah, yeah, because the, the stress that, that it creates, and I'm I'm not very good at, at doing this. Like when when things are when I'm I'm managing this well, I I will I will do breathing exercises, I'll swim, I will take proper breaks. But that's I have to be honest. Like most of the time, I can't. Uh, most of the time, I'm I'm very just sort of consumed by the amount of things that I have to do. Unplugging entirely is is difficult. Yeah, it's uh, I think it's part of. I'm I'm sure that can be done. Like there are people that are doing this really well. I'm not the best person in that. I tend to bring back a little bit my kind of concerns and issues back home. It takes me a, a bit of time before I can really like leave this at the door. Yeah. And thanks for sharing really honestly, because that was really the point of the question where I think also well, great for people who can manage all of this, but uh, it's, it's just hard to have it a is. company, to be a founder and personal and family life and just do your best and i think it's also very honest here to share that you know it's a challenge and uh, you do your best and it's a process i think the, the pressure out there is this sense of of responsibility and and duty to to do the right thing like a lot of people just place the trust in me and, and other people you know to just do the right things and and so you have this in the back of your mind always like am i am i doing what is right am i doing enough am i doing what i should be doing and that makes it it's great, uh, but it also makes it harder to just say like, yeah, just like I'm done. I'm just gonna have a break. Uh, again, if I'm, you know, entirely honest about that, if I really want to do the, the right thing for my team, I should take these breaks. That's what is the right thing to do. We, we have to un unplug and we have to, you know, recharge ourselves. Uh, we have to be fresh so we can perform well. Uh, yeah, I was, I'm not very good at doing that, but working on it. <laughs> And what is to you the definition of success in life? Definition of success in life. Maybe, maybe if, if I ask myself like every day, like how much regrets do I have? Having the least amount of possible <laughs> regrets is a success. Whatever I'm doing. <laughs> if I can say like, well, that's maybe I'm not, I don't know, happy with what I'm doing. But generally, like I don't regret deeply, you know, certain things that I should have said, should have done. Should have, you know, as long as I don't have that sort of baggage then I, I think I, I would feel successful. <laughs> Thank you. I, I love the answer. And also it's very, it has some philosophy to it, you know, like uh, I always like uh, see this question mm. and answers type that could be a lot around the business or I don't know, like tangible things. But I think also like looking simply at on a daily basis, how do you feel when you end the day? I think it's also mm -hmm. a great inspiration. And uh, as we are reaching also the end of our conversation today, I always have these three last questions I ask all my guests. So 
My first is, what are the next big steps for your studio that, of course, you can share uh, more publicly? Yeah, let's begin with this. So <laughs> that's that's nice to talk about this. It, again, I think it's it's about culture. It's, you know, we're growing the studio. And I think the next big step is how do we reach the next phase of the studio where culture is going to change? It has to change. But how do we make sure that it changes for the better? <laughs> it's like, that's the to me, that's really the... The biggest challenge, whatever we, we're going to do. The reason for that, and why it's such a big step, like how do we go from 50 people to more and maintain a good culture, a healthy culture, is that no matter what we do as mm. a studio, no, really, no matter the number of projects, we will always, as a studio, as a team, be successful if we have the right culture. It doesn't matter the strategy that we have. It doesn't matter the plans that we make. It doesn't matter. Like As long as we have a great culture, people have ownership, people take good decisions, people are just essentially performing, you know, as well as they as they can because we have the right environment. Then we'll be fine. That's my belief. <laughs> so, I would say like that's the next big step for me. How do we scale, maintain great culture? Mm -hmm. And in terms of like maybe more technical terms, at the moment, so of course we we continue hiring people. We're continuing we continue growing the team. We have a free to play title that we're working on at the moment, and we are going back into publishing. So we started. We published two free-to-play titles uh, before Battle Royale. We're getting back into this. It has changed enormously in the past year, uh, user acquisition, you know, publishing in general. And so this is going to be a big step for us, like going back into, into publishing uh, our games and maybe other, other studios' games as well. Great, exciting news. And I think also scaling uh, culture is uh, one of the biggest challenges of many companies that from, you know, founding stage and to a big scale company, a large company, it's, it's a big uh, challenge. Definitely. And second question, who is your role model in the industry or personally, somebody that inspired you in your journey? All right. So it's going to be funny. And, and uh, again, maybe not so surprising. I don't know. To me right now in the industry, I think Simon, my, my co-founder, the CEO of the, of the studio is uh, a big inspiration for me. Like, He, he really helped me kind of, okay, I should talk about myself. I have a tendency to be fairly visceral and fairly emotional. And I saw how one can be both fairly, again, like empathetic and creative, but also analytical and strategic. That's, that's him. And, and he showed me that can exist. And so working with him really helped me kind of putting me on different tracks and I think he's, he's, yeah, I think he's, he's been a great influence within the industry. Uh, I don't think I was exposed to great leadership uh, as well before um, in the previous companies I worked at. Um, they were great managers, they were great people, but vision, you know, leadership strategy, not, not so much. I was not really exposed to, um, to that. So it really helped me. He's, he reads a lot of books. He's a, he reads a lot. So, and that's also something that I kind of picked up with being in, in, in contact with him. So that would be that. And outside of the um, outside of the industry, I think right now, there are people, you know, many different people at different point of time, but I think right now I'm very challenged, I think, and uh, enthusiastic about Shane Parrish. From, um, he's, uh, he's from Farnham Street and he runs the Knowledge Project. And I think every time I, I listen to an episode, I feel like, whoa, oh, new things to, new things to, you know, he is a lot about like mental models and ways to uh, think through and, And, and I, I love that. So mm -hmm. uh, each episode has like very, very vastly different people yeah. uh, in, invited. But the thread here is how do they go about doing what they need to do? How do they, how do they find solutions and, and 
And for example, recently we had, I think, uh, I can't remember his name, it's the CEO of uh, Shake Shack uh, talking about culture. That was really interesting. Uh, culture in the, in the you know, FM. I love his podcast as well. Uh, Knowledge Projects is awesome. And uh, my last question, uh, if you had one thing you wish to change in the industry right now, what would it be? Um, one thing. Well, I think it's still... <laughs> It's probably diversity, <laughs> to be honest. It's it's still like like for me it's a, it's a big one because I I just feel we're still like a bit late uh, with with this in the game industry. It's still very like to be honest like it's very white male dominated, and I think uh, uh, we're just missing out on so much uh, by by not having more more diverse teams. And yeah, that would be that would be the main one. Maybe I, I if I can I will add a second one, which is more local which is there is a stigma around the game industry in Southeast Asia. It's still like, it's not really a, it's not a real job. And I would really like to see that change as well, uh, that people see that as a career. They can, you know, earn a living and yeah, it's a real, it's a real work. And that would be nice if that, that could change that perception. Well, thanks a lot, Ben, for all your wisdom, uh, inspiration as well about culture. I took away a few things as well for me today. It was great to have you on the podcast and we'll talk soon again. Thanks a lot, Sophie. It was, it was really nice. Um, I really enjoyed participating. It was a great exercise for me to also like think more about what I do and why I do things. That was very <laughs> useful. So thanks a lot for having me. Great to hear. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to this new episode of Raise and Play podcast. If you enjoyed the content and want to support what we're doing, rate and review the podcast. Spread the word about it. If you'd like to contribute to the change too, reach out to me on LinkedIn for a collaboration. You'll find all the rest of the content on riseandplay.io, including my free masterclass on conscious leadership. Until the next time, 